0: Welcome to The Morning Magazine on KGNU Community Radio. It's Friday, August 25th of 2023. I'm your host, Jack Armstrong. Coming up on today's program, we hear voices from the Raza Park. Then we hear about the Telluride Mushroom Festival. After that, it's Sports Talk with Jimmy. And we'll wrap up with .org, our Friday spotlight on local nonprofits. After that, it's Connections. This week, Rosana longo will host a group of community leaders to discuss the consequences of the Pueblo Chieftain's printing facility and the future of the printing press. Then, at 9.30, it's the Morning Sound Alternative with Meredith Carson. That's all still coming up, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Benita Lee.
1: Denver Mayor Mike Johnston held a press conference yesterday to address the city's state of emergency on homelessness. KGNU's News' Zach Thompson has more.
2: Mayor Mike Johnston declared the current state of emergency on homelessness during his first week in office. The press conference served to deliver an update on the initiative. Johnston listed potential sites for tiny homes or pallet homes. The city is talking with the apartment owners about leasing units. They're also working on converting hotels across the city. The chosen sites have access to resources and utilities the unhoused will need. Johnston said yesterday he visited an unhoused encampment, which has had two gun violence incidents. The most recent happened two nights ago.
3: I think they're afraid. They're sleeping in a tent in the middle of the night and that doesn't provide them access to safety. What we know most of all is this underscores the urgency of why this strategy is so important. Talks of logistics are
2: still ongoing. The city has begun the process of zoning and permitting for these potential sites. As of now, the city is hoping to start the move-in process in November and December. For KGNU, I'm Zach Thompson.
1: Local environmental groups filed a lawsuit this week against the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission. The suit claims emissions monitoring rules are not strict enough in communities that are highly affected by pollution. Earth Justice filed the lawsuit on behalf of plaintiffs Green Latinos, 350 Colorado, and Earthworks. The plaintiffs say the AQCC exceeded its authority when it made an amendment undermining a state law requiring air monitoring. A government spokesperson told the Denver Gazette that the defendants will review the claims before deciding how to respond through the legal system. A 91-year-old woman passed away after a driver hit her Thursday morning. Louisville police responding to the crash found the woman lying on Cherry Street. Emergency responders took the woman to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Police said the vehicle's driver is cooperating with their investigation. Officials are asking that anyone with information about the crash contact the Louisville police. Health officials confirmed the 11th death related to West Nile virus Thursday, this time in Denver. The city's Department of Public Health and Environment confirmed that a 71 year old person hospitalized with the illness had passed away. On Tuesday, two other fatal infections were reported in Larimer and Boulder counties. Across Colorado, 60 people have been hospitalized with the virus this summer out of about 100 cases. Thousands of dead fish were discovered floating in a popular lake at City Park in Fort Collins Wednesday. Parks officials say high temperatures combined with shallow water reduced oxygen levels in Sheldon Lake. According to the Coloradoan, the dead fish included shad baitfish, grass carp, bass, and sunfish. Living crawdads were seen crawling onto rocks for oxygen. The city is releasing more of its water shares into the lake to raise oxygen levels for the living fish that remain. More e-bike vouchers are coming for City of Boulder residents. The next online registration round begins Wednesday, August 30th. Income-eligible applicants will be randomly selected in a lottery system. The four different voucher categories can reduce e-bike costs by between $300 and $1,400. More information can be found at BoulderColorado.gov. The University of Colorado Boulder Art Museum just received a rare acknowledgement—accreditation from the American Alliance of Museums. Out of some 33,000 museums in the nation, only about 1,100 are accredited. CU Boulder's Art Museum is now one of 26 in the state. The peer review process towards accreditation took five years. Museum representatives say it's an important milestone that means greater credibility among peer institutions and a stamp of approval for how the museum engages the community. The CU Boulder Art Museum houses collections of ancient and modern works spanning 10,000 years of human history. A flood watch is in effect for the high country and the front range all day today through Saturday morning. Slow-moving thunderstorms are expected to dump heavy rain. Flash flooding is possible. In Boulder, a high near 71 and a low around 58. In Denver, a high near 73 and a low around 61. In Fort Collins, a high near 72 and a low around 58. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee.
0: You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Jack Armstrong. The fifth annual La Raza Park Day event will take place this Sunday. Seen as a hub for the Mexican and Chicano communities, the park is a valuable place for many. KGNU's Ivana Levis has the story.
4: I grew up in that park. Like I spent like every day of my life in that park.
0: For
5: Jolt, founder of Guerrilla Garden, artistic curator, and public artist, La Raza Park is more than just a park. It holds valuable memories of friends, family, and celebrations of culture.
4: I was there for some of the the riots and things that took place with the Chicano movement and the police violence. Um, I was there in the 90s during the summer of violence. I was there in 93. I have that temple, the kiosk. I have that tattoo on my body. Like, you know, I'm a big part of that park, and it's a big part of me.
5: Jolt is one of the organizers of La Raza Park Day event, hosted by Warm Cookies of the Revolution. It will be held on Sunday, August 27th, and will feature live music, food, and dance, celebrating Mexican and Chicano culture. Although a celebration, the event began with other intentions.
4: Well, I initially started as a A statement we wanted to make against like the way the policing was going on, and um, and then that just turned into something much bigger. The idea was to to make a cruise, to create a cruise, because police were messing with all the cruisers, all the lowriders. So I thought, hey, well, wouldn't it be cool if we got a proclamation through the city where it was put in writing that we were cruising down federal and instead of the police like following behind us, they would be our escort.
5: The main event of La Raza Day and one that attracts the masses is the low-riding cruise through the community. Low-riding gained popularity during the Chicano movement in the 60s and 70s. Jolt said it's become a vital part of Mexican and Chicano culture ever since.
4: I think the history of it is is something that's been celebrated. There's publications, there's films, there's pop culture, you know, how it's influenced that. Um, currently, the Denver Art Museum is doing a show based around lowrider culture. It's a representation of the art. Um, it's also a representation of, like, kind of the, the romance and the beauty of our culture. The lowrider is a piece of Americana, right? It's a It's an American car, usually a Chevy, an Impala the most American of things is, is our automobiles that came out of the industry, uh, this this Americana. And when you think about like somebody coming from another place, taking this piece of Americana and making it their own and a representation of, of their heritage, this is important because owning public space, especially in times of Denver being like such a gentrified city where we've lost our own place, our own communities, Owning these public spaces is important, and the lowrider is the vehicle that allows us to do so.
5: Gentrification has been a common theme in conversations around Denver neighborhoods. Previous to 2020, La Raza Park was named Columbus Park. The name change occurred after decades of civic engagement and political fights. It also received designation as a historical cultural district. But Jolt says the effects of these changes are yet to be seen.
4: The name change started in 1961, so we never, in my lifetime, acknowledged Columbus in any sort of way, let alone the park being named Columbus Park. Um, but it is that community is historically an Italian community too, so there's been a lot of like battles over that over the years because they see Columbus as being a hero to them, even though he was Portuguese. He it was an Italian. I mean, it's it's a little win it's superficial in a way it's just the the name change of the park like if we're not there owning that space and and being a part of community and practicing what community is then none of that matters it's just a name um but that we'll take that little win and when we do say that it's historic is that going to affect what we can do adding to the park later does that limit us uh so i think time will tell so we'll see in the long run what that actually does if if that creates a way for public funding to go to the park and then start to, to tell the history of the park what the people have gone through and really represent the residents that you know have lived within that park then i see it as a positive thing
5: Jolt says he hopes people leave the event this Sunday with a sense of community, pride, and empowerment. But most of all, a smile on their face.
4: People leave and they're happy. You see a lot of a lot of hugging and, you know, dancing and multi-generational people celebrating the culture of the park. Um, that's, that's what we hope to accomplish. That's number one, you know, with all of it.
5: Community will gather at La Raza Park in Denver on Sunday, August 27th, for the fifth annual event. For KGNU, I'm Yvonne Olivas.
0: The Telluride Mushroom Fest is a storied celebration of all things mycological. Following the recent decriminalization of psilocybin in Colorado, the festival is opening up the conversation around psychedelic mushrooms and their healing powers. This year, the festival introduced its first-ever integration space to offer support and discussion for psychedelic users. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KOTO's Gavin McCoff stopped by and brings us this report. I'm just out back of what might be
6: Telluride's first ever integration space. It's the first day of the Telluride Mushroom Festival and still morning. This back porch and the back room of an art gallery on Main Street have become a shady and calming respite for practicing integration. And what exactly does that entail?
7: So the the space came about by somebody bringing it to my radar that we've never done anything like this. And with the decriminalization of psilocybin and other plant ethnogens in Colorado, we felt like it was something that Telluride Mushroom Festival really, really needs to have.
6: That's Rebecca Roberts, who works with Mushroom Fest and helped organize the space. When Colorado voters passed Proposition 122 last fall, they decriminalized psychedelic mushrooms and opened a pathway in the state for the medicinal use of psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in many mushrooms. Joe Young is a social worker based in Durango who specializes in psychedelic integration work. The use of psychedelics, she says,
8: It can push us into... Different realities or different spaces that we haven't been into before in that space. We can have Realizations we can have more understanding of our life or our connection with nature And I believe it's really hard to come back into reality of what your day-to-day life looks like
6: As more people turn to psychedelics, the integration space provides a safe place, an atmosphere of support and discussion, or just quiet. Although this is the first designated integration space which the festival has offered, Robert says discussion of psychedelics has long been one aspect of this festival's culture.
7: Um, The beginning days of the festival were centered around being able to talk about not just psilocybin mushrooms, but also other plant ethnogens it was really science-based and people would, would, would come in from both the west and the east coast to, to, to gather, and the talks about psilocybin and plant ethnogens were happening really underground because in those days, society just culturally wasn't okay with plant ethnogens.
6: The time which Robert speaks of was the early 1980s when the festival was founded and the U.S. was embroiled in the war on drugs which criminalized the recreational, medicinal, and even scientific use of a whole collection of substances. As the legal outlook for psychedelics is slowly and gradually reopening, there's been a new crop of science which looks into the promising possibilities of using psychedelic substances in mental health care, well-being, and exploration of the current moment, says Young.
8: Uh, It's a resurgence. It's It's a remembrance, not a new thing. Um, and so, yeah, the, the resurgence speaks to us starting to let in um, all of the research that, that can be done and needs to be done in this space.
6: Roberts adds this is a particularly exciting year for the Mushroom Festival.
7: People who, who normally might not have been comfortable having their say in the conversation because they were worried that where the law stands are now able to openly speak about their experiences with psychedelics.
6: And Young's experience, warming up to these conversations takes time. Reflecting back on the integration space, she says many communities... Those in other countries or amongst indigenous peoples have a long history of using psychedelics. It's an accepted part of life.
8: They can talk to their family members about it. They can talk to their community, wherever they're going. Whereas here, it is pretty um, stigmatized still, even though we have voted in and decriminalized it. Um, we need these spaces that are safe and non-judgmental in nature to really express what's happening in those experiences.
6: All are welcome. As Young and Robert stress, anyone who might want to chat about these topics should stop by and say hello. For KOTO, this is Gavin McGoff.
3: Guys, it's back to school time. Whatever you do, for your own safety, avoid Target at all costs. Hello and welcome back to Sports Talk with Jimmy. I am your host, Jimmy Searfoss, coming at you with the latest and greatest sports news and stories from across the front range. On this episode of the best sports show here on KGNU, we're going to kind of build off of what we talked about last week. Last week, we spoke about the history of Folsom Field, where the University of Colorado Buffaloes play football. And on today's show, I wanted to talk about a different facility on campus that has recently got some upgrades. Prentup Field is actually home to the women's soccer program. It originally was home to the baseball team, and you can kind of tell if you look in one of the corners and you can see where a backstop used to be, but that team was dissolved long ago. The soccer team has called it their home since 2003, and until now, it was lacking quite a bit, mainly in one thing and that is mostly standard in fields everywhere today lights. Lights are now a fixture at Prentup Field, allowing them to play afternoon and night games. And they played their first one August 17th against Northern Colorado and they won 3-0. It was the first game under the lights up at Prince Up Field, but the upgrades didn't stop there. Other upgrades included a building that holds things like bathrooms and concessions. New stands were added for people to sit and they resurfaced the field and completely gave the locker rooms a facelift. And this goes to show that the University of Colorado is investing in more than just their football team. The upgrades are a part of a $4.4 million renovation project. That also sees upgrades to Potts Field, too, where the track and field team works. They are adding a 4,026-square-foot support building that includes similar things that was added to Prenta Field, and the ski team is actually getting a little building featuring upgrades to the bathroom and changing room departments as well. These renovations are part of Colorado's 2022-2025 gender equity program related to the Title IX compliance and also make Colorado meet the requirements to host the May 2024 Pac-12 Track and Field Championships. A statement from Athletic Director Rick George said, adding amenities like lights to print up field and new concession stands also benefits for spectators as well, creating a great game experience for fans and student-athletes alike. So make sure you are going and enjoying these new amenities at these fields in the Colorado women's soccer team and track and field team, it actually looks like there's going to be a lot of opportunities for fans to go see games out at Prenz Field, especially against some good opponents coming up as number 14, Michigan State, is going to be in town August 27th at noon. Colorado's actually recently coming off of a win underneath the lines against in-state rival Colorado College so they're racking up the wins against schools that share the same state as them. The Colorado women's team actually went 8-7-5 last year, but they did go 8-2-2 two, and two at home. And that is just about all the time we got for you here today on Sports Talk with Jimmy. I've been your host, Jimmy Searfoss. Make sure you tune in next week at this same time for more Sports Talk.
9: Time now for .org, spotlighting the work of local nonprofits and co-ops. Hi, this is Chris Schultz with KGNews.org, and I'm here with Lorez Minahol from Caring for Denver. Lorez, you guys worked with the City of Denver on the STARS program. You want to talk about kind of your guys' involvement in that?
10: Yeah, so Caring for Denver was founded and funded by the City of Denver. We were created out of a sales tax increase where every $100 spent, 25 cents goes to Caring for Denver, which is to address Denver's mental health and substance misuse needs. And so it was really important to think about. How do we approach some of these issues differently if we want different responses and different outcomes? And so we have this opportunity to be innovative and to fund in spaces maybe that haven't been tried. And so as we engage community in the work, what we heard was we need a different response as it relates to public safety. And so what it allowed us to do was to create this response that sends out instead of law enforcement, sends out a paramedic and a licensed clinical social worker to address the person in crisis needs and then we also have some case managers and community partners that can also address some of those ongoing needs so while it's important to address the immediate crisis ultimately our true goal is to ensure that people that need care get yeah. access to that care how did the
9: city engage with you guys to start investigating this
10: uh, i think we were one of the co-collaborators in creating the star program the true critical success to the STAR program has been the involvement of so many from the beginning. So Community Harm Reduction Action Center, we had Servicios de la Raza, we had Dasher, uh, we had Leslie Harrod, Representative Leslie Harrod, we had the 911 and law enforcement. And so we all had the opportunity to go to Eugene, Oregon and see how a different crisis response could happen. This was an opportunity to say, how would we adapt what works in Eugene for the city and county of Denver? And part of what I will say that sparked Chief Pazin's interest in this is, Colorado also has a co-responder program. And what that is, is a mental health provider that rides along with a first responder. So in Denver, we have that within our police department, and we have it within our fire department. And we just added two co-responders in Parks and Recs. The police department, Chief Pazin saw the impact of that. They could see a different way that not everything needed a criminal justice or a criminal legal response. There was a mental health response. There was a substance misuse response. They got people connected to care. And they saw how effective that was, that they realized there's a certain amount of calls that they never actually even have to go out on.
9: I think Leslie talks about why it is so important to work with the city services and how that Denver 911 is is the key component for requesting for services. Has that been a challenge? Is-
10: you know, again, I think because the city has been so involved in the creation of co-responder 911 has also recognized there needs to be a different response for folks when they're in mental health or substance misuse crisis. And again, the reason they play such a critical role is you can send out an alternative response, but if in the end law enforcement still shows up, you've undermined the whole impact of having a non, non-legal, non-law enforcement response. And so this was an opportunity to show up differently to help build trust again with some of these systems of care to feel like they were understood and respected so that they could get the care they needed. Do
9: you want to talk a little bit about the documentary coming up and how people can learn more about the program?
10: We were very fortunate to have the Office of Economic Development and International Trade very interested in lifting up this successful Denver model statewide to say that we could have a different criminal legal response than sending out law enforcement when people were in mental health and substance misuse crisis. There was a video uh, documentary created to lift up the story. What made it successful? It was the involvement of community, it was the involvement of law enforcement, it was the involvement of 911, it was the involvement of some of our public health systems, Denver Health and Wellpower. And so the documentary really tells those stories and perspectives what needed to come together to make this model successful.
9: PBS 12 is planning to air the documentary on September 17th. Please check your guides to find out more. You've been listening to KGnews.org. For more information on this organization or to listen to other episodes, please go to news.kgnu.org.
0: That's all for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Jack Armstrong. Thanks to Alexis Kenyon, Jimmy Searfoss, Jackie Sedley, Gavin McCoff, and Benita Lee for their help on today's program. Stay tuned for Connections, coming up after these news headlines from the BBC.